0: habib and this is our american stories. And now it's time for our this day in history segment brought to us by Hillsdale College, a great place to study the constitution, philosophy, literature, all the things that matter in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you. Go to hillsdale.edu and check out their great online courses. I went to a great law school in this country, University of Virginia. But I learned more taking the Constitution 101 course there than I did in three years at UVA. It's just terrific stuff. Again, that's hillsdale.edu. And now to our story of the day, this day in history. We love music on this show, as you know. Frank Sinatra for an hour, Miles Davis. We've done Jerry Garcia, Billy Joel. Uh, No kind of music we don't love. And there's nothing more American than the sound of the electric guitar and perhaps no single more American guitar than a Fender Telecaster or Stratocaster. Some might prefer the sound and feel of a Gibson, another fine American guitar, but we'll cover that on another show. Because on this day in history, we're talking about the creator of Fender guitars, a man who helped shape the tone of music in America and around the world for the rest of time. Our American Stories producer, Jesse Edwards, brings us the simple story of the man who created Fender, And we'll hear from the famous musicians who at one point fell in love with this iconic brand at first sight,
1: and more importantly, at first sound. Clarence Leonidas Fender, better known as Leo Fender, is the creator and inventor of the world-famous Fender guitars. Some of the world's greatest musicians prefer to play Fenders. Just ask Pink Floyd's David Gilmore. Fenders
2: seem to allow the personality of the player to come through. Um, better than other guitars. do. Other guitars tend to make homogenized people. They all start sounding the same with other guitars, I find. And you can instantly recognize with Fenders, A, which model of guitar it is, and who's playing it.
1: Or American country music singer-songwriter Marty Stewart.
3: Nashville was Telecaster heaven, you know. And every record that came out of Nashville in the 60s seemed to have Chicken picking and the old Johnny Cash songs, you know, like "I Walk the Line." It wouldn't have been the same without a Fender guitar.
1: Here's American country music and blues artist, singer, songwriter, and guitarist Leroy Parnell on his take on Fender guitars.
0: The first time that I heard a Fender, then I wanted to play. When I realized that tone, I said, "What is that tone? That doesn't sound like any of the guitars I'm hearing." Around around here was uh, when I first heard uh, the uh, Layla, the Derek and the Dominos album, and Clapton's guitar sound, and it sounded tremendous to me. It had clarity, but it had body, and it and it it uh, it really changed my idea about what a guitar sounded like.
1: Leo Fender was born August 10, 1909, on his parents' farm in Anaheim, California. In Leo's spare time, he enjoyed repairing electronic equipment. During high school, Leo decided to pursue a professional career in accounting. By the early 1930s, Leo married his wife, Esther, and worked as an accountant for the State of California Highway Department in San Luis Obispo. When the Great Depression hit, Leo, unfortunately, lost his job. He borrowed $600 and opened an equipment repair shop called Fender Radio Service. Eventually, Leo got involved in the guitar and amplifier business as well. Leo soon found his true passion in life, and it ended up making him a very successful entrepreneur. Leo would reinvent and improve on the technology of the electric guitar. His new guitar had a cutting-edge sound, which ended up revolutionizing and changing the face of the music industry. In his later years, Leo's health deteriorated, but he continued to innovate right up into his final days. He suffered a number of strokes and developed Parkinson's disease and died on May 21, 1991. Leo never learned how to play the guitar. The Fender Broadcaster, launched around 1950, was the world's first commercially available guitar with a solid wooden body and bolt-on neck. Leo Fender's whole design was geared towards mass production and to a simple yet effective electric instrument. After George Fullerton joined Leo's Fender Electric Instrument Company in 1948, the two men set about devising their production solid-bodied electric guitar, the Fender Broadcaster, the principal advantage being the ability of the solid body to deliver a clean, amplified version of the string's inherent tone. Even if Leo Fender had only built this one guitar, his company's place in the history of electric guitar would be assured. Here's Mike Campbell, guitarist for Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, talking about the time he first had a chance to play a broadcaster, which would later become the Telecaster, after he loaned his Stratocaster to Tom Petty.
3: Back in 75, I think, and we were in the studio working on the first Heartbreakers record, and all I had was a Strat. Tom wanted to play guitar, so I loaned him my Strat, and then I needed something to play. So I went down, the one day I bought, I found the broadcaster, I think it was 600 bucks. I didn't know what a broadcaster was, I wanted a Telecaster, but it looked like a Telecaster. I later found out it was better than a Telecaster. I bought hundreds of guitars since then, and every time I go back to that one, which is the original one, this is the the uh, the clone, the almost exact clone of my original broadcaster. Every time I pull it out nowadays, whoever's getting the sound goes, what's that? You know, like, why don't you use that more often? It just makes, I was lucky. I got a real good guitar that day, and that's what I learned to play on. In fact, I've never washed the uh, gunk off the neck. This is all my sweat and 40 years of sweat and grime. But I won't let them clean it off because I I don't want to mess it up.
0: And when we come back, we'll hear how the Fender broadcaster turned into the Telecaster. We'll also hear from other rock stars about the next level of the iconic Fender brand, the all-famous Stratocaster, as Keith Richards, Eric Clapton, and Buddy Guy talk about their favorite guitars. How odd, a man who never learned to play the guitar, who is an accountant, would revolutionize... This thing called, and create in some sense, this thing called rock and roll. More after these messages. The life of Leo Fender. Born on this day in history. Lee Habib and this is our American story and when we left off listening to the story of Leo Fender who was born on this day in history and by the way he died in March of 1991 and we were listening to the story of how he went from a kid who liked to take apart radios to a failed accountant who turned a $600 loan into one of the most iconic guitar brands with the creation of his guitar the broadcaster. And again, it's something we were talking about here in the studio. The guy never played the guitar, and yet he changed music as we know it. And this is, again, where art, commerce, entrepreneurship, and innovation collide. And there is a business here, and there is a a genius here that that changed the world, that had nothing to do with music, but yet changed the music world. And, well, let's pick off where we left off. Here's Jesse Edwards again. (music)
1: The Fender Telecaster is the longest-running solid electric guitar still in production. A brilliantly simple piece of design which works as well today as it did when it was introduced in 1951. The Telecaster was Fender's original Broadcaster Electric. The company was forced to change its name when another guitar company, Gretsch, claimed prior rights to the name. But Leo Fender and his small workforce in Fullerton, California, must have been delighted with the new Telecaster name a thoroughly modern reference to the emerging medium of television just right for an equally innovative device like the Telecaster, the first commercially marketed solid-body electric guitar. The Telecaster, usually referred to as the Tele, is known for its bright, cutting tone and straightforward, no-nonsense operation. The guitar has been used by all sorts of players from all kinds of musical backgrounds. The guitar is able to emulate steel guitar sounds and is used to a great extent in country music. Here's Keith Richards of the Rolling Stones talking about his Telecaster.
4: It gives you more range uh, on the sound of a Telecaster, and um, basically we put the humbucker on there to give the guitar and a, a little bit more range because I have several telecasters and some we like to keep like strictly telly, and others to so give them some more, you know, if you're using open tuning for instance I'd put a humbucker on one end so um, This is all highly tech, isn't
1: it? The secret to the Telecaster sound centers on the bridge. The strings pass through the body and are anchored at the back by six furals, giving solidity and sustain to the resulting sound. A slanting back pickup is incorporated into the bridge, enhancing the guitar's treble tone. The Telecaster will continue to survive due to its simplicity, effectiveness, and versatility. Stratocaster is perhaps the most popular and most emulated solid electric guitar ever. Launched in early 1954, it was designed by Leo Fender together with his colleague Freddie Tavares. The two were also helped by the contributions of country musician Bill Carson. Leo Fender had already pioneered the solid electric guitar with the Telecaster. The stylish Strat, epitome of the 1950s tail fin flash design, built upon Fender's idea of a guitar engineered for mass production rather than handcrafted for individual players. It had three pickups where most electrics only had two. There was a tremolo arm to bend the pitch of the strings and return them more or less to accurate tuning. The strings could also be adjusted at the bridge. The guitar also featured a contoured body for player comfort and a jack plug socket recessed into the front of the body. Fender Strats continue to be a very popular guitar today. Buddy Holly, Jimi Hendrix, Eric Clapton, Buddy Guy, Stevie Ray Vaughan, and many other famous players have used the Strat during their careers. That was
4: the sound, you know, that
1: sort of banjo. Here is Eric Clapton talking about his famous Fender Stratocaster called Brownie.
4: brownie takes me back to a state of mind and a state of capability. What what I would always look for on a, on a strap was a maple neck that had been worn out. <laughs> you know, that was the thing. If it looked brand new, then it was obviously, you know, it was like a restaurant. If there's lots of people in there, you know, it's got to be good food. So um, I just thought if it had all those kind of worn out patches, it meant that it had been, you know, well-favored. So that, that would, this probably would have pretty much been what, what it was like when I bought it.
1: And here's more from Eric Clapton talking about the first time he heard and saw a Fender guitar. I saw Buddy Holly holding one. Buddy Holly
4: played one. And, and you know, the, all those records that he made, it sounded like it was really, really quiet, you know, and the tone, you know, it was he played it like an acoustic guitar a lot of the time. Um, so it had that initial appeal to me when I was a kid. But then, somewhere down the road, I went to the marquee and saw Buddy Guy. And I heard Buddy Guy on an album called Folk Festival of, of the Blues, where he was the new kid on the block playing with Muddy and Howling Wolf, and they were all singing, and he just launched into this solo that killed everybody dead, you know. And uh, And then I went to see him at play, and and he was bouncing it off the floor, you know, playing it behind his and between his legs, behind his head, but, but but taking it off and throwing it on the floor and bouncing it and catching it and play. I mean, all these kind of tricks that obviously had been going on, you know, for for those guys for a long time. Everyone was up to that apparently back there, and 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 it was you know went out a little bit, and he didn't use you know the wang bar. It was all. Man, I thought that's this. This is the sound, and then Hendrix, mm. yeah, and, and and Jimmy was playing one, while I was still playing an SG, mm. and so I, and I didn't get to it then, but I got to it right away afterwards. And I think the the problem was trying to find the um, um, the, the maple necks. You know, they weren't that, you know, the the the, the all the all the model, models that were current at that time had rosewood right. fingerboards, so. They'd kind of gone out of circulation this end of the, of, the, of, the, of the scene anyway. It wasn't until I went through the States on tour that I started picking them up in pawn shops and uh, record shops for a song, you know, and I'd buy four or five at a time. Mm. So that comes back to me, you know, when I pick up these guitars. That all comes back to me, doing the Johnny Cash show, mm. you, know, all, you know, with Carl Perkins, man. I mean, touring with that... In a quartet that was quieter, funky, very, very strong. All of it hinged on the toughness of this guitar. There's a lot involved. There is there's a nostalgic thing uh, about my own journey, uh, and uh, let alone the journey of the guitar.
1: The two things combined. And here's legendary blues guitarist Buddy Guy talking about his first attraction to the Fender Stratocaster.
5: My first love was the the, the Fender Strat and the Fender Basement. I was playing the Strat, doing it, trying to do as much like guitar slam as, as, as I could because I, I copied a lot off of him. And Eric tells me in a later date that him and Beck caught me that night and changed the whole world of playing Strats. And they just all went for the Strat and the sound that I was getting. And I'm thankful they did that because they have helped me a lot since then. Uh, the reason I like playing Fender guitars is uh, when this guitar come out as a solid piece. Before that, it was all acoustic guitars. If you would drop one of them, good night, Irene. So the Fender guitar would take a lot of punishment. And it was a matter of fact, I toured Africa once with a, with a, 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 a vintage Strat. And they, we was in a, a, a station wagon. We had to put it on top, and it blew off at 90 miles an hour and when I went back to retrieve it a, car, a truck was about to run over it and they saw me laying in the street to keep from running over and all I had was one key had and got a little flat and I just had to turn it up. I had a couple of keys bent but the guitar was still in peace until somebody stole it from me 30 years later. So it's just a uh, The type of a wear and tear guitar that when I was a youngster, I was wild, I would throw it across the floor and everything, you could get it, and I wouldn't worry about it being uh, a a bust wide open, a crack wide open, or something like that.
1: From the Telecaster to the Stratocaster, without Leo Fender, American music would not be the same. Jimi Hendrix, Stevie Ray Vaughan, Eric Clapton, David Gilmour, Buddy Guy, Mark Knopfler, Heath Richards, Bob Dylan, Bruce Springsteen, Prince, George Harrison, Muddy Waters. Just a few of the world's best guitarists that built their sound around Leo Fender's design. Not bad for a guy who never even learned how to play the guitar. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. And there you have it.
0: While Leo Fender's personal story is short and sweet, it paid off in the end. $600 investment turning into a multi-million dollar guitar empire that is recognized around the world. And listen to all those figures. Listen to those guys telling stories about their guitars, their first guitars. Like some of us would talk about a first date or a first car. I'll never forget seeing Bruce Springsteen at the Stone Pony, and I knew he was there that night, because there was that Fender Esquire of his with a chip in it. And he was sitting on a stand, and a couple of us recognized it, moved to orchards, and these bouncers, like, jumped on us, and then went, shh. Because he was going to be a surprise guest for a small act playing in this little tiny club in New Jersey. But that's how he knew. That was not only a Fender Esquire. It was old. It was beat up. It was the one you always see Bruce playing. And he never let go of that. He's still carrying around that same guitar he played back in Asbury Park in the late 1960s and early 70s. And that's the affection these guys, whether it's David Gilmore or Marty Stewart or Mike Campbell. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. The life of Leo Fender. Great job on this, as always, Jesse. This is Our American Stories. is our American stories and today we have one of our favorite regular features with marriage coach Deb Walniak. This week she brings us the story of Jennifer and Justin, a younger couple with a heart to help others see the beauty of marriage even through the difficulty. The Murphs begin by telling us the story of how they met.
6: The way that we met, we debate about this, right? We, uh, we met at a conference that uh, I was facilitating Nerdy conference on uh, postmodern missiology, but uh, she walked up and said, I have no idea what in the world this guy just said. Can you explain it? And so I did, and um, I guess that was intellectual love at first sight. But uh, <laughs> then, <laughs> then a few weeks later, uh, she shows up at church, and this was a problem because I was a college pastor. I was a single college well, pastor at Well, I church.
7: actually thought Justin was married. Because yeah. he was the college pastor at the church, and he, you know, he wore like pleated khaki pants, and so I thought I it wasn't. I did think he was smart, but it wasn't necessarily love at first sight because I thought he was married.
6: That's a that's a good caveat. So yeah. he shows up at church, and I'm like, this is horrible. Because if you come to the church where I'm serving, you're one of my college students now, and that's creepy, and I can't date you. But about two weeks later, the best thing happened, and our executive pastor walks in and says, listen, there's this bright, young uh, college student, we're looking at it, maybe bringing her on staff, kind of help you out with with the women in the college ministry and kind of do some stuff with the women's ministry in the church. Her name's Jennifer Cannon. What do you think? So, of course, selfishly, I'm like, oh, she's phenomenal. She's intelligent. She's smart. She's funny. You absolutely should hire her right away. And so they did. And about eleven hours later, we were dating. So eleven months later, we were walking down the aisle, and uh, this may well make eleven years.
7: We we have four (laughs) daughters,
6: and he's
7: quite the ladies' man. Out an eight-year-old, it just means I've given (laughs) up ever
6: winning an argument. That's all. (laughs) Absolutely. Eight, six, four, and two—all girls. Our little princesses.
8: So you guys are in the millennial generation, correct?
6: We're right on the, the beginning end of millennial
7: marriage. In previous generations, um, they did things very traditionally. They they got married, uh, they you know started a career, they had children. Millennials these days have done it quite opposite. Uh, many of them are delaying or even abandoning marriage altogether. Justin and I did it a little different. Uh, we went the traditional route. Uh, every time I had a a baby, I started another degree, and uh, we made it work. I mean, I don't think that I was I would have been able to go as far in my education, and that you know, if I wasn't married, Justin's been my biggest cheerleader. Uh, but millennials don't see it that way. Uh, they really uh, think that marriage is going to keep them from any type of success.
6: You look at the numbers. I mean, in 1970, the average age of marriage was 23. The average age of homeownership was 25. Today, that's 30 and 35 respectively. So when when we got married at, she was 21, I was 24, we were the first in our in our friend group to actually get married. And uh, we have friends still to this day from that same group of friends that are still single. And, uh, you know, they're pursuing education and they're pursuing their career and they're doing good and they're like, gosh, I, I want to have kids now, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm middle management or I'm moving up the ladder in my company. And for me to... to try to find a a wife or a husband and and start having kids, it would mean sacrificing my career. And what's been interesting for us is, we, honestly, it's it's not been that case for us. It seems like, like Jen said, not only with the education, but every kid we've had, it's just, um, you know, it seems like more doors open, better jobs open, better pay comes, and part of that's just, I guess, part of growing up, but uh, we have not experienced in our own life the the downfall of marriage, quote-unquote, that a lot of people, uh, you know, believe the lie of, that if, if you settle down, you're going to limit your opportunities.
7: And so when I met Justin, I did not want to see this fail. And so we work really hard. You know, we, the odds are against us. We come from divorced homes. You know, we have student loan debt. You know, we had children young. If you look at statistics, people would literally say, you're going to fail, um, but we choose not to. We choose to continue to work hard. And that's where um, Millennials for Marriage was birthed, was out of that desire to see marriage succeed lot, you know, among Millennials.
0: The Murphs go on to talk about the importance of commitment in their marriage.
7: Well, when he asked me to marry him, I didn't have to think twice. It was, I mean, why didn't you ask sooner? And um, I was... Commitment wasn't something that uh, was a dirty word to me. Like in many millennials, they don't want to use the word commitment. They don't want to be tied down to anything. They want the you know, the, the contract that you can get out of quickly. That wasn't the case with Justin and I. We made a commitment from the beginning. If we choose to say yes to marriage, then we're not going to use the D word. And Justin and I, we've been through some hard things. You know, we've mm-hmm. lost uh, a baby. We've lost jobs. We have um, moved 11 times. And throughout our whole journey, we decided that we were going to go and we're going to conquer life together, even if it gets tough. And so I think it was making that decision from the beginning that divorce was never an option.
6: I, I would add one thing. that When, when we were engaged, um, there was a day where she, she hands me back the ring and she says, listen, I'm not calling our engagement off. But I need to know that I know that I know with a hundred percent certainty that you're the man that that God has for me to marry. And I said, okay. So are you are you breaking up with me? No, no, no. I'm not doing that. I need to take some time because here's the thing: when things get hard, and they're definitely going to get hard, I need to be able to look back to this moment and say, nope. I heard. I have total confidence that this is the right man for me. That this is who God wants me to marry. And that's what's going to sustain me in the moments when I'm ready to choke you. And, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, okay. when the
7: stuff hits the fan, I go yeah. back and say, no, no, I, I, I know and, that you're the man for me.
6: And 24 hours, she came back, grabbed the ring and said, all right, let's get this thing done. Let's do it. And, and <laughs> that, that has really been a defining moment in our relationship because, yeah, life happens.
7: You know, Justin and I, we do five-minute dates. Every single day. Uh, We have four kids. We work. We're professionals. um, We're busy. And so we make sure that we set aside aside time to really connect with each other every single day. Uh, So that's one thing that we do. Another thing that we did from the very beginning of our marriage is that we had people outside of our family that we spoke with when we had issues. We never went to our in-laws. I don't think that our in-laws can be very objective about um about the things that we're going through.
6: Mm-hmm. The other thing I would say is that um marriage, you know, you hear the adage, you know it takes you know, it takes both people, you know, working, it's a fifty fifty. And I'm like, no, 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 it's actually a hundred hundred. You you both have to pull equal weight. You both have to be all in we're running out the door this morning, we've got the kids in the car. She turns and says, Hey can you grab the the uh the trash out of the trash can And I'm like, there's a good chance the kids have probably stuffed a bunch of stuff in it. If I pull it out, it'll get all over me. I'm in a suit. I've got to get out the door. We're in a (laughs) hurry. And yet, you know, I very easily could have just said, "Um, oh, gosh, I'm sorry, honey. I totally forgot. and just got in the car. That would have been a lie. But uh, (laughs) instead, no, I pull it out and stuff falls on the floor. And picking it back up, putting it in. And finally, I get up to the car and, you know, she's happy. I've done my part sorry I didn't put the trash can the trash bag back in the can honey. So we we actually have this thing and uh, that we joke around with couples and we say, Listen guys, I'm gonna give you the biggest tip to a successful marriage and this is it. Um, experience and learn short sure play. Okay.
7: My love language is after I had kids, you know I used to be I love touch. After having kids I'm so bombarded with touch. The best way Justin can um encourage a beautiful night in the bedroom is through chore play you know when he does the dishes there's not a sexier looking man than whenever a man's doing the dishes i mean i'm like man wow
6: it does make a big difference you know when you don't have to carry the weight of everything at home by yourself
0: well that's a tip for all of us huh got to think of that this is lee habib this is our american stories our marriage on the mind Segment continues with Deb Walniak after these messages. This is our American Stories, and we return to our Marriage on the Mind segment. We love this segment, and we just heard from the Murphs, Jennifer and Justin, and now we're about to hear from Deb Walniak, and that's our marriage coach, not our marriage counselor, folks, our marriage coach. And Deb, thanks as always for joining us.
8: Thanks for having me.
0: You bet. And by the way, I think everybody who was listening, every guy listening, and even every woman listening, was thinking, wow, her love language. Is her man in a smock doing the dishes? And let me tell you, if that works for you guys, give it a shot.
8: Oh, if you haven't tried it, give it a shot. Exactly I'm right. You. Yeah, and you even shared offline that this is something that you do for your wife. Is that right?
0: It is actually. I do, and I've I've learned that you pick up the the slack on the chores, and you got a lot happier marriage.
8: Oh, it's so true. Well, and, and here's the thing: every household is different. Sometimes the man is more home than the woman, and vice versa. But if you look at your spouse. And look at where it is they find some of that stress and they're carrying that extra burden. Make a mental note of it and stop them and say, hey honey, I'm going to take care of it. Maybe it's that, you know, a screaming child that's having that temper tantrum that just went on too long and they're about ready to be like, honey, let me take care of this one. I'm not kidding you. That is the best way to serve your spouse and support your team because as you heard from this particular interview, team is so important. They're fighting for that. And I love how this couple set up such a healthy relationship from their single days to their dating days into their marriage. You can see a consistency throughout that, can't you?
0: Yeah. What's this five-minute date that we're talking about?
8: So the five-minute date is a really good concept. I like how they practice it and brought it up and are teaching other couples to do that. That five-minute date is allowing yourself that that moment that time and it's going to be different for every couple sometimes it's in the morning sometimes it's in the evening but you have to have it away from the kids maybe they're asleep and you're having that five minute date it could be as simple as how was your day and listen and vice versa? Or what's important for me to know as I go into this day? Is there something that I can even think about for you, Pray for you on, run an errand? What is the critical thing that's going to make your day better? And find ways to serve your spouse. And now some people get really scared when they say the word serve. Oh, my goodness, what does that mean? Am I committing to a ton of things? No, it could be one thing that takes 10 seconds that makes a world of difference in a 24-hour day. The question is, is have you taken that moment to find out what that is? Because that thing is going to communicate love to that spouse, even louder than your words. The actions that you take are so crucial to your marriage.
0: No doubt. And Justin and Jennifer talked about at one point the effect of 11 different marriages amongst their parents and close family. And what kind of effect did that have, Deb, on their marriage? What kind of effect did those other relationships have on their relationship?
8: Right, in that extended interview, they shared their heart, and she did, Jennifer did, about the fact that, you know what, this is something, our history, our family tree has broken branches. We have broken marriages throughout that time. And it does affect the children. I know people wanna say, oh, they'll get over it, they're young, they'll get, yeah, yeah, they will, they'll become resilient. But it does impact their life and their decision making. So what Jennifer said to herself is, I need to model myself after some couple that has sustained the course, that has a healthy relationship, and what does that look like? And that ended up being, I believe it was her aunt and uncle, don't quote me on that, but she looked at them and she said, That is the couple I want to model myself after. So she ended up looking for a future spouse that had some of those same qualities that the man in the household had. And when, you know, her future husband came into the picture, it was just super evident. She had thought about it before, she planned and prayed. And when that became came to be, it was very evident that that was where they were going to go. But it didn't end there. That role modeling that she experienced in that family household was got into her household, and she was able, along with her husband, even at a young age, to be able to say, "Listen, we're going to hit the skids. Sometimes we're going to have to move a lot. We're going to lose jobs. You know, you don't know these things when you make that lifelong commitment." But you're going to have it happen. So who is your role model that you can either go to as a mentor, hopefully outside your family, let's have that caveat here in a second, but who can you go as a mentor to coach me through this situation or who is that role model and how did they handle it? And let me tell you, that advice about going outside of your family lines for mentoring, coaching advice, maybe even counseling, is so critically important because you need that clear eye and vision into the situation and someone who is not going to get emotionally charged to either the wife's side or the husband's side.
0: Yeah, I mean, in the end, you can't help but have a Hatfield and McCoy thing go on, no matter how hard you can try. And by the way, there are exceptions. I know in my family, my brother uh, had a divorce we loved the we loved his wife. And there were times when we were taking her side and it was getting him really mad. Like, I said, you side with her. What about me? And, mm-hmm. but, you know, that, and I think that can happen. But in general, Deb, it's much more of a minefield. Than, than normal talk, Just talk, dig a little deeper on that Because I actually think family exacerbates the problem And I think the more you confide In your family when things are going bad You build up this terrible reservoir Then the people start to hate your spouse mm-hmm. And then all the time he's good Well they're not hearing those stories They're only mm-hmm. hearing the stories about when he or she was bad And talk yeah. about that Because I, I often will tell my friends Stop sharing the negative stuff With your family Unless you're okay. going to be really adamant About sharing the positive stuff too
8: Right, right. And I'm guilty of that. I can raise my hand and I can say, in my young married life, I made the mistake of getting upset at my husband, but venting it out and talking it out with other family members and not him. Now, is that fair? No. That's not fair. And that's probably one of the most hurtful things you can do to your spouse. If you find yourself doing that right now, stop it. Stop. I'm serious. This has got to get even in your lane, and you must respect yourself and get some help outside of the family. You're going to feel a lot better about it, and things are going to get resolved faster. But let me tell you what. One of the things that parents have to do with older adult children as they're in those dating years and as they're going to either extended schooling or right into career, the one thing that they have to be very, very careful of is not to put those young people on a timeline. Um, you're going to hear this a lot from people who are kind of that in-between stage, I'm not married, but I kind of graduated from college, and, you know, I feel this pressure. You're right. Sometimes we do. But when are you getting, When are you, like, who are you seeing? When are you getting engaged? When are you buying a house? When do you have children? I mean, okay, people, we don't have 80 million finish lines, and let's just take it one step at a time and enjoy the moments that we're at. Why? We need to become the strongest single person that we can be knowing ourselves, loving ourselves, and growing in our career and our goals so that we fully know when that right person comes along and we go, oh, my gosh, there they are. We can talk about those things honestly and be able to build a relationship that supports those goals with each other as a team. And team is a big word I want you guys to underline in your head right now because if you're not operating as a team, you can't be a team. And it's so, it sounds so simple, but it's hard to do. But what do you need to do in order to move closer to team? Take that five-minute date that we talked about just momentarily ago. Take that time to do some self-reflection, maybe some journaling and say, hey, this is where I think we're at, and I want to move closer. Take that one step toward you and that one step toward you, and before you know it, you're back together again, trying to get those schedules in sync. Maybe it's as simple as that. Or maybe it's complicated as, you know what, we've had a problem for years. And now I feel like I need to take the step and take the courage to go to the difficult spot with you and talk about the thing that's been plaguing our marriage for so long. And so many people end up faking it till they make it, and a lot of times don't make it, unfortunately. So I really, really am encouraging people to focus on your partner, focus on those needs, be honest in conversation, and just give yourself even the five-minute date just to check in.
0: And, Jeb, finally, in just about a minute here, what is it they're doing to help millennials? What's that millennials for marriage? What's that all about?
8: Oh, this is such a good thing. I'm telling you, a lot of millennials are wanting to get married at some point, even though they're pushing it off to their 30s. They want to have children at some point and still asking the question, how does this happen so much later than others and with all the pressures? These guys have put together Millennials for Marriage, not only to be role models themselves to a generation that's asking these questions, how does this work, and can it work, and can I trust somebody again, but they're also supporting millennials through some of the work they're doing. Check it out online. Get into the things that they're doing if you have questions on this, and I encourage older folks to go as well. Why? Because we can learn a ton of things from this couple, and they are speaking absolutely Truth
0: into the situation. Well, thanks as always, Deb, our marriage coach, Marriage on the Mind. And thank you to Jennifer and Justin Murph. And by the way, the millennials I've met, I think a lot of them are scared. I think another whole bunch of them have experienced divorce. And so that makes them even more frightened. And then it's the economy. A lot of them don't feel on solid ground, they don't feel on solid footing. And last but not least, I heard a psychological expert talk about the fact that we're living to 90 years old now. And so in the block of three spans of life, youth, middle-aged, and old, it, when you were 60, it was 20, then 20 to 40, then 40 to 60. And he said, now it's 30, 60, 90. And people are mm-hmm. planning that and planning that in their heads. So that, I thought, was really fascinating. But always great discussions, and thanks so much for joining us, Deb, as always.
8: Thank you, Lee.
0: Take care. This is Our American Stories, Marriage on the Mind. If
9: it be your will That I speak no more
0: American Stories, and you're listening to Leonard Cohen, a unique voice, a poet, songwriter. we're going to spend an hour on his life. Yes, he's Canadian. We get it. The influence he had on American writers, on American music, and the life he lived is worthy of celebration. And so we do because we love music here on Our American Stories. Leonard Cohen was born... On September 21st, 1934, in Quebec, in an English-speaking area, into a middle-class Jewish family, his mother, Marsha, was the daughter of Talmudic writer of Lithuanian Jewish ancestry. His paternal grandfather, whose family had emigrated from Poland, was Lion Cohen, founding president of the Canadian Jewish Congress. His father, Nathan Cohen, owned a substantial clothing store, but died when Leonard was nine years old. Cohen passed away on November seventh, 2016, and he explored everything in his writing and in his poetry, religion, though, politics, isolation, loneliness, self-doubt, sexuality, personal relationships, the big stuff. That's what he wrote about. Political correctness was not his game. Democrats tried to seize his mantle. So did Republicans. Same with Dylan. You can't seize Leonard Cohen's mantle. It's unseizable. He was inducted into both the Canadian Music Hall of Fame and the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame, as well as the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Cohen enrolled at McGill University in Montreal in 1951, where he became president of the debating union and won a literary competition. After completing his undergraduate degree, Cohen spent a term in McGill's law school and then a year at the School of General Studies at Columbia University in New York. Cohen describes his graduate school experience as passion without flesh, Love Without Climax. His first published book of poetry, Let Us Compare Mythologies, in 1956, was published the year after Cohen's graduation. The book contained poems written largely when Cohen was between the ages of 15 and 20. Listen to a young Leonard Cohen recite a portion of Let Us Compare Mythologies. During
10: the first pogrom, they met behind the ruins of their homes, sweet merchants trading her love for a history full of poems. And at the hot ovens they cunningly managed a brief kiss before the soldier came to knock out her
0: golden teeth. He was always going to be writing about serious things, folks. Always. Here's another sample of Cohen's poetry. This one from Spice Box of Life.
10: You tell me that silence... Is nearer to peace than poems. But if for my gift I brought you silence, for I know silence, you would say, This is not silence, this is another poem, and you would hand it back to me.
0: Cohen biographer Ira Nadal explains that while Cohen's poetry had merit, it was rather tame compared to what was popular at the time.
1: It has some merit. I mean, if you looked at it in relation to American poetry being published at that time, and you're just at the cusp of the Beat Generation, Howell is 1956, for example, preceding it, it's pretty tame stuff. But for Canada, whoa, great. Here was a young writer, found his voice, wasn't uh, embarrassed to write nakedly about uh, subjects that other poets had been much more discreet about. Here's another reading from
0: Leonard Cohen from Two Went to Sleep, written in 1964, performed in 1974.
9: Two went to sleep almost every night. One dreamed of mud, one dreamed of Asia, visiting a Zeppelin, visiting Nijinsky. Two went to sleep, one dreamed of ribs, one dreamed of senators. Two went to sleep, two travelers the long marriage in the dark. The sleep was old, the travelers were old. One dreamed of oranges, one dreamed of Carthage. Two friends asleep, years locked in travel. Good night, my darling, as the dreams waved goodbye. One traveled lightly, one walked through water, visiting a chess game, visiting a booth, always returning to wait out the day. One carried matches, one climbed a beehive, one sold an earphone, one shot
0: a German. Leonard Cohen's music, well, it started oddly and unlikely. And it's the song Suzanne. It was written by Leonard Cohen in the 1960s, first published as a poem in 1966 recorded as a song by Judy Collins in the same year, and Cohen performed it as his debut single from his 1967 album Songs of Leonard Cohen. Many other artists have recorded versions, and it has become one of the most covered songs in Cohen's great catalog.
10: Suzanne takes you down For you've touched her perfect body with your
0: mind Leonard Cohen's music, Leonard Cohen's life, celebrated for the hour. Let's go back to Suzanne. Jesus was a sailor when he walked upon
10: the water And he spent a long time watching from his lonely wooden tower Could see him. He said, All men will be sailors then until the sea shall free them. But he himself was broken long before the sky would open. Forsaken, almost human, he sank beneath your wisdom like a stone.
0: This is our American Stories the music, the life of Leonard Cohn. When he decided to switch creative direction, well, who knows if he actually decided it. I think it just happened. From poetry to music. It happened at the age of 33. By the way, we've done a lot of music stories. It almost always starts much, much younger. And I'm talking 8, 10, 12, Irving Berlin, 5. It starts really young. Leonard Cohen, 33 years old. Here, Cohen talks about that transition from going from an author to a musician.
9: At a certain point, I realized that uh, I, I'm going to I'm going to have to buckle down, and make a living. I, I don't really know how to do this. I'd written a couple of novels, and they'd been well received, but they'd sold about maybe three thousand copies. Some of them some of them won an award or two, and and the reviews were good, but but the sales were very very limited. So I I, I really had to do something and. The only other thing I knew how to do was play guitar. So I was on my way down to uh, Nashville. I thought maybe I could get a job. I love I love country music. I, maybe I get a job playing uh, guitar. And then uh, I'd been in Greece for a long time. I was kind of out of touch with what was going on. When I hit New York, I, I, I bumped into what later was called a folk song renaissance. There were people like Judy Collins and Dave Van Ronk and Dylan and Joan Baez. There were wonderful singers around, and I hadn't heard their work, so um, that touched me very much. Because I'd always been writing little songs myself too, but I never thought there was any, any uh, marketplace for them.
0: Yep, and there was. Songs of Leonard Cohen was released in December 1967, and by the way, by 1989 it had reached gold status and here record producer john simon talks about recording that first album with leonard cohen and how he discovered that what made cohen stand out well was something very different from other musicians
2: he had been signed by john hammond and leonard's complaint at the time was that leonard was holed up in the chelsea hotel he would have a session with john hammond and john hammond would say some at some point during the session or right before the session i'm sorry we have to stop or we have to cancel this session and leonard was there for another month in the Chelsea Hotel without another session. So he had asked Columbia, I suppose, for a different producer, and they had paired us up. Then I began to realize the kind of musician he was. He wasn't a guitar player like most of the artists that I was working with, because most of the artists came up through listening to pop music. So they knew how to play, uh, you know, rock and roll or blues, something like that. Leonard, apparently learned how to play classical guitar, because he did those things like real fast, real fast. It was very easy to record, and, and it was a pleasure. It was a pleasure to record, and it was smart, you know. It's, a lot of these acts that I recorded, they weren't too smart. But Leonard uh, was, you know, smart and, and, and fun to be with and, and uh, full of uh, insight about things. So it was an honor to work with Leonard, you know, and a pleasure.
0: Track five from Leonard Cohen's debut album is a song called Sisters of Mercy. Here, Cohen talks about how this was the only song he ever wrote from beginning to end with not an edit.
10: All the Sisters of Mercy. I was in
9: Edmonton doing a tour by myself, Canada. I guess this was around 67. And I was walking along one of the main streets of Edmonton. It was bitter cold, and I knew no one. And uh, I passed these two girls in a doorway. And they invited me to stand in the doorway with them. Of course, I did. Sometime later, we found ourselves in my little hotel room at Edmonton, and the three of us were going to go to sleep together. Of course, I had all kinds of uh, erotic fantasies of what the evening might bring. And uh, we went to bed together, and uh, I think we all jammed into this one small couch in this little hotel. And uh, it became clear that that wasn't the purpose of the evening at all. And at one point in the night, I found myself uh, unable to sleep. I got up, and by the moonlight, it was very, very bright, and the moon was being reflected off the snow. And I wrote that poem by the ice-reflected moonlight while these women were sleeping. And it was one of the few songs that I ever wrote from top to bottom without a, re- a line of revision. The words flowed and the melody flowed, and by the time they woke up the next morning, it was on, I had this completed song to sing for them.
0: And here's that song, Sisters of Mercy, from Leonard Cohn. All oh, the sisters
10: of mercy, they are not departed or gone. They were waiting for me when I thought that I just can't go on. They brought me their comfort And later they brought me this song Oh, I hope you run into them You who've been traveling so long It begins with your family, but soon it comes round to your soul. Well, I have been where you're hanging, I think I can see how you're in When you're not feeling holy, your love never says that you've sinned.
0: In this next clip, Leonard Cohen talks about his unlikely success as a struggling author becoming a successful musician. He attributes it all to luck, skill, and hard work. In hindsight,
9: it seems to be the height of folly uh, yeah. To, 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 um, to resolve your economic crisis by becoming a, a folk singer. No, 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 I don't know. And I, 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 and I had not much of a voice either, and I didn't play that great guitar either. So, uh, it, it was. Uh, I, I don't know how these things happen in in life. They, luck has so much to do with with uh, success and failure. I always had a, I always had the notion that I had you know a tiny garden to cultivate. Uh, I never thought I was really one of the big guys. My work, the work that was in front of me was just to cultivate this, this tiny corner of the field that I thought I knew something about, which was something to do with self-investigation uh, with, without self-indulgence. I, I never liked the latter too much as a, as a, as a mode. Just pure confession I, I never felt was really interesting, but, but, but confession filtered through a tradition of, um, of skill and uh, 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 hard work. Indeed.
0: There'd be several albums to follow. Here is record producer John Simon again about how difficult it is for a musician to release new music after that successful debut album.
2: There's something really extraordinary about a debut album. An artist has been writing these songs for quite a number of years, generally, and so they're the cream-of-the-crop songs, the best songs. And they don't want to save the second the best songs for the second album. They don't want to give you their second best songs. They want to give you their best songs. And uh, along with that is the fact that the second album is often the most difficult to do because uh, a debut album will come out and it'll be sens- a big sensation, and people will say, well, what's this clown got to follow up with? And then they're stuck, and they have to really scramble and write fast, and, and uh, sometimes the second album is forced and contrived. But the first album is always genuine, and the... And the Uh, the result of the artist's soul from the time that they were born until the time that they make that album.
0: And that's so true. And there are so many, so many bands who it's over after album one. Because that represented a decade of work. And the pressure to top it, to do better, to move into a different direction, really hard. Leonard Cohen for the hour. We're going to dig into the miraculous part of his catalog because it just kept maturing. I was lucky enough... To see him at the Lyceum Theater About a year before he passed Brought my bride And it was one of the great honors of a lifetime Musicians had descended from Nashville From New York Everywhere And it was hushed It was silent And you were seeing something that You knew was original You knew was wonderful And you knew you were lucky Lucky To be there And you also got the sense it may be the last time you'd ever see him. As you'll learn, he did not like touring and did not like the spotlight. A star, a celebrity who hated the spotlight. Leonard Cohn, his life celebrated for the hour here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories for the Hour, The Life of Leonard Cohen. Several recordings in the 70s, Phil Spector on one. But the song Hallelujah, well, that's the song so many people know him by. It was first released on his studio album called Various Positions in 1984. The song had limited initial success, but found greater popularity through a 1991 cover by John Cale, which formed the basis for this cover. here Leonard Cohen talks about the success of hallelujah happy that the song was was
9: um, being used uh, of course there were certain ironic and amusing uh, sidebars you know because the record that it came from which was called various positions that record Sony didn't put wouldn't put out they didn't think it was good enough it had songs like Dance me the end of love, uh, Hallelujah, if it be your will. But it wasn't considered good enough for the American market. It was. It wasn't put out. So there was a certain sense of a uh, mild sense of revenge that arose in my heart. But uh, uh, I don't. I, you know, I, I, I was. I was happy about it. But it's. I, I was just reading a review of uh, a movie called Watchmen that uses it. And the reviewer said, can we please have a moratorium on Hallelujah, you know, in, in movies and television shows. <laughs> you know, I kind of feel the same way.
0: <laughs> I'm sure. Hallelujah has been performed by almost 200 artists in various languages. Here, Leonard talks about why he thinks people should stop covering the song, at least for now. He also describes how Bob Dylan was the first person to notice the song.
9: I think... Too many people are singing. I, I think people ought to stop singing it for a little while. You know, you're, one is always trying to write a, a good song, and like everything else, you put in your best effort, but you can't command the consequences. So it took a long time. The, uh, the song was written. I, thought, I think the song came out in, in 83 or 84. And then the only person who seemed to recognize the song was Dylan. And he was he was doing it in, in college. Nobody else recognized the song until quite a long time later, I think. When was Jeff Buckley's ninety two? So it's almost uh, ten years later. I was in the room when when K D Lang sang it at the uh, Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame. That that really touched me.
0: Indeed, and KD is some singer. And by the way, John Hammond, who signed the uh Leonard Cohen Act to Columbia. He also signed Bob Dylan, and he also signed Bruce Springsteen and Billy Holiday. Not bad for a career. That's an A and R guy. While Cohen says it might be time for people to stop covering Hallelujah for a while, he goes on to talk about how he's never been critical of anyone who's covered any of his works. I'm
9: not sure this ever happened. You know, I, I had a very modest career for most of my life, and uh, I was always happy when someone did one of my songs. So that overrode critical concerns I might have had. In fact, you know, my critical faculties went into suspended animation when someone would do one of my songs, and I I generally was just delighted when anybody... And I still
0: feel that way. Here, Cone talks about what his songs sound like and how female backup singers have a major influence... On his music,
9: I wanted the songs
0: to sound like everybody else's songs.
9: In other words, uh, I was very much influenced by women's, women's background voices. I liked those songs that had that feel. You know, those are the songs of the fifties. So those those are the sounds I I wanted to try to reproduce. Also, my own voice sounded so. disagreeable when I listened to it that I really needed the sweetening of women's voices behind me
0: well let's take a listen hands down my wife and I's favorite we were so happy he played it at the Orpheum Dance Me to the End of Love and again this song was on the same record that Hallelujah was a song an album that the Columbia record folks didn't think was much of an album And they were proven wrong. Let's take a listen to this beautiful, romantic ballad by Leonard Cohen. In regards to live performances, Cohn describes a cycle of anxiety and confidence depending on the reaction from his audience.
9: You cycle through these, uh, these feelings of anxiety and confidence. You know, if, if, you, if something goes well in one's life, one uh, you know, feels the, um, the benefits of, of, of the success when something doesn't go well. One, one feels remorse. So uh, those, those uh, activities persist in one's life right, right, to the, right to this moment. I have a strong sense that I exist, so that's as legitimate as I, as I need to, to be. But when you're out there in front, of, in front of the public, you're going to get a whole lot of responses. And um, at this stage of the game, I have a pretty thick skin. So uh, I, 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 I prefer praise to, uh, to criticism.
0: But, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really ready for both. And again, at the Orpheum, he was at the top of his game. He didn't look worried. He looked in command. And maybe that's because the audience was just hanging on every word and giving, giving him the approval all artists and performers long for. And we leave with Dance Me to the End of Love. Leonard Cohn, The Life of the Hour, here on Our American Stories. Dance me
9: to your beauty
0: with a burning violin.
9: Dance me through the panic till I'm gathered safely. Touch me with your naked hand. Touch me with your glove.
0: American Stories. That's Nick Cave covering I'm Your Man by Leonard Cohen. And the man wrote about love like few ever did. Not sweet and saccharine, but not ugly either. Just the tough kind of love anybody who's been in a real long loving relationship. It's not simple and Leonard Cohen's music is not simple. And while Cohen never married, he had many women in his life. Here, Cohen talks about the influence that his relationships have had on his music and how love is the most challenging activity that humans can endure.
9: It's not a level playing ground for either of us, for either of the men or the women. Uh, this is the uh, the most challenging activity that uh, that humans get into, which is love. You know, where we we have we have the sense that we can't live without love. That life has very little meaning without love. So. We're invited into this arena, which is a, a very dangerous arena, where the um, possibilities of uh, uh, for humiliation and failure are are ample. There's no fixed lesson that one one can can learn about about the thing, because the heart is always opening and closing; uh, it's always softening and hardening. Uh, we're always experiencing. Um, Joy or sadness, so there's no, there's no jackpot. In the whole enterprise, there's just you're either going to have the courage, because, after a certain amount of time, the accumulation of defeats, in this realm, are going to be um, significant. So uh, I think people that, um, in spite of the defeat, in spite of the uh, impossibility of of uh, establishing reasonable contacts with the other. The people that are fortunate enough to be able to continue to do that are indeed fortunate. But there are lots of people that close down. And there are times in one's life when one has to close down,
0: just to regroup. Just to regroup. I think that's why so many people were drawn to Cohen. He wrote about love and betrayal, that flip side, and the humiliation and the shame. Cohn here continues his thoughts on relationships and the different experiences that come with each one.
9: It's a ferocious uh, uh, activity, you know, where you experience defeat and you experience um, acceptance and you experience uh, uh, exaltation. And uh, uh, the, um, a fixed idea about it will definitely... Um, uh, cause you a great deal of suffering. If if you have the feeling that it's that it's going to be an easy ride, you're going to be disappointed. If you have a feeling that it's that it's going to be hell,
0: all the way, you may be surprised. Indeed, in 1992, Cohn released its follow-up, The Future, a terrific record, my favorite, which had dark lyrics, but optimistic points as well. But he was looking at the future and at political and social unrest to come. And let's take a listen to the song, the showcase song, the title song of that record called The Future. ¶¶ of the key lines in that give me back the Berlin Wall. Give me Stalin and St. Paul. I've seen the future brother. It's murder. He's looking for good and evil. He's looking for those stark contrasts and sickened by the ambiguity and the moral shades of gray that everybody says there's really no difference between wrong and right. There's no such thing. And he's yearning for good and evil and discussions of it again. And how many writers in the 1990s are writing about that? We know that John Paul II was talking about that. We know that Ronald Reagan was talking about that. Theologians across the world, Solzhenitsyn, was lecturing people at Harvard about this. And there was Leonard Cohen right there. And at the age of 60, he felt his time as a performer had passed. He shaved his head, became an ordained Buddhist monk, and moved into a monastery. He continued to consider himself Jewish in regards to his faith here Leonard Cohen talks about how he was never able to enjoy fame
9: I had some wonderful moments on the road you know traveling with musicians
0: and playing with musicians and
9: you know playing in different countries before different kinds of people there were some wonderful moments and wonderful concerts um, but I was never really Except, you know, when I you know, have a few bottles of red wine and sing my heart out with some great musicians. And that was wonderful. And uh, I know, I'll cherish those moments. But by and large, I didn't have what it took to really enjoy my success or my celebrity. I, I was never able to locate it. I was never able to um, use it.
0: Cone describes the peace, quiet, and minimalism that he enjoys in the Buddhist traditions. I like the
9: quietness of it. Uh, I like the idea of being with people and not having to speak. I like the silence. I like the company, the sense of community, and yet
1: the silence in the midst of it. It's very different from being by yourself. Uh, It's a very uh, rich silence. It's a
9: very uh, communicative kind of uh, silence. So I like that very much. Uh, And I like, you know, Washing my little dishes and uh, having my little my little bundle of dishes and, and spoons and chopsticks, you know, it's it's very uh, uh, it's a uh, voluptuous uh, sense of economy that uh, uh, you can't find anywhere else. I mean, maybe the world was like this at one time. You know, maybe everybody took care of themselves this way. Maybe everybody. Uh, really looked after things and you know uh, I don't know but I'd like to be in a place where you know people uh, uh, cherish the idea of a clean table and of a uh, uh, of a a meal that has been you know carefully cooked and carefully served and carefully eaten Uh, to me it's a very refreshing opportunity
0: Cohen describes the writing process in his later years as becoming increasingly difficult because of the nature and tone of our times. Let's take a listen.
9: In writing, if if you can discard the slogans that naturally come to you, especially in a highly politicized time like we are now, where gender politics and, uh, and, and regular politics and uh, environmental politics, you know, where there's... Uh, uh, a good thing to say about everything if you're on the right side. Uh, these times are very difficult to write in because the slogans uh, really are, are jamming the airwaves. It's something that goes beyond what, what has been called political correctness. It's, it's a kind of tyranny of, um, of, um, of, uh, uh, of a posture, a kind of tyranny that exists today of like, what, what, what the right thing should be. Those ideas are swarming through the air like locusts and it's difficult for the writer to, to determine what, what he really thinks about things, what he really feels about things. So uh, in my own case uh, uh, I have to write the verse and then see if it's a slogan or not and then toss it. But I, I can't toss it until I've worked on it and seen uh, uh, what it really is. So I, I find that process of writing the verse and discarding it until I get down to something that, that doesn't sound like a slogan, that doesn't sound like, uh, like, like something that's easy. that surprises me.
0: The life of Leonard Cohen, never a slogan. You can't find slogans in his work. And it's never easy, but it's almost always beautiful. The life of Leonard Cohen, his poetry, his music,